Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Welcome back. It is our first guest of 2024, but also a guest who we met in 2023. Well, at least I got to meet her. Brooke Katala is a singer-songwriter making a breakout in the world of country music, and we attempted to record her story in 2023. But weather and technology had different plans for us then. So with her busy recording schedule and my busy work schedule, we had to find a time in 2024 to try again for this conversation. It was one I was really looking forward to, as I get an unmatched dose of inspiration every time I talk with a singer-songwriter chasing their dreams. So listen in. Let's welcome Brooke. Welcome back, Brooke. Thank it you. is uh, First of all, Happy New Year. Um, and it's great to have you back. I know that we... We first connected in 2023, yes. um, and we we attempted to record then. <laughs> and what's interesting is I think there was like storms in your area, yes. and there was also bandwidth issues. And here we are uh, in early 2024, and now you're in the midst of a snowstorm in Nashville. Crazy. So I feel like we just we just keep going with like stormy stormy weather. Um, but I appreciate the opportunity to to reconnect again today. Um, and welcome you back, uh, I guess, officially back to the podcast, but it'll be the first time that uh, your episode goes out. So first off, how are you? Happy New Year and how are you? Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks again for having me. It's great to reconnect in the new year. I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited about 2024 and just starting a fresh year. Um, I've got a lot of exciting stuff with my music coming up, and I'm just really looking forward to new opportunities with my music this year. Absolutely. Yeah. Congratulations. I've seen a lot of stuff uh, recently. I was just kind of looking at what you've been up to and um, just to kind of set the scene so folks mm-hmm. uh, folks know sort of how I found you. Um, you know, sometimes there's those gifts on Instagram where you, you end up connected to someone and you see their stories. And there was a gentleman who is also a fellow veteran um, named Patrick, and he had a story that had some of your music featured on it. And I remember sort of stopping my tracks and being like, whoa, this voice sounds very unique. Thank you. You're very welcome. And I remember saying to myself, as someone who's been a long time listener of country music, uh, you rarely hear sort of these hints of different voices in one voice. And, you know, to go back to my notes, I remember writing, I hear hints of Sheryl Crow. Mm -hmm. I hear hints of early Faith Hill. Um, I hear hints of Natalie Maines from Mm -hmm. The Chicks, um, Miley Cyrus, and even Lady Gaga. And so I wanted to start there and sort of see, are those names that of people, one, that you admire, two, that you hear other people say, wow, when you 
when you sing, when you perform, when you're in your flow, that comes through. I'm just curious about that because that's what stood out to me. Yeah. Thank you. First off, for even comparing my voice to all those artists, that means a lot. And I do look up to all of them. I have gotten Miley Cyrus multiple times and Cheryl Crow is like, that's the one I always get. Um, 10 out of 10 times I'm like playing out. Someone's like, you sound like Cheryl. So she's one of my favorite artists, someone I look up to um, in so many ways. But I have always, always had the rasp. Um, as you can tell in my speaking voice right now, partially because it's the morning, <laughs> but I have always grown up with a raspy voice. And to be honest, when I was younger, I was like, this sounds so weird. I don't know if I like it. And the older I get, the more I embrace it, especially with my music. Um, and I just think that's what's super cool, especially in country music, is there's so many talented females out there. And I look up to so many artists. Um, but I will say, I feel like to my advantage as an artist, having the unique voice separates me. And that's what I'm really trying to play off with my music is my unique voice. Um, so I am very thankful that I have it. But sometimes it's just funny because when I was younger, I used to be like, what is like wrong with my voice? I sound like a frog. But I, I do embrace it now. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm curious too, when, you know, as a as a singer songwriter, you probably, I mean, you, you've been singing since you were like eight years old. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've heard your voice over the years evolve. And yes. one of the things I'm always fascinated by is, and as someone who does very limited audio production, right, <laughs> with this podcast, I do everything myself. I don't have I don't have like a whole team behind me and I've taught myself, which I know you can appreciate because you you're teaching through YouTube mm-hmm. and you teach other people guitar and and, and um, about music. So I'm curious, as you've gone back and listened to your voice over the years, and this actually happened to me uh, after about 50, between 50 and 100 episodes of hearing my own voice. Yeah. It's almost like my my mind and and the sound of my voice fused and I finally started sounding like myself. Whereas before you would go back and you listen to yourself on recording and you'd say, do I really sound like that? Oh my gosh. And I'm curious, what was that like for you? (laughs) It's so funny because when it's my talking voice in videos, I'm like, no, that's, I don't want to listen to that. Is that me? (laughs) But I feel like with my music, it's so personally as an artist, I feel like I've run into this with a lot of artists that I know. People are like, do you enjoy listening to your recordings and yourself? Honestly, I used to be like, I don't want to listen to myself. Like, you know, I was in the studio, been there, done that. I've listened to it a hundred times. Like, I'm good. You don't need to play my song. But now I feel like I'm so used to it. Um, Whenever I'm with family or friends, I'll play my music. Or when I'm in the studio, you have to listen back to what you just sang like a hundred times on loop because the producer is going through mixing it. So I just feel like that's something you have to get used to. And I feel like over time I have. I have adjusted to it. And I'm like, okay, this is my voice. I'm used to it now. But at first I, I was like, all right, let's pause. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think it is a really sort of interesting experience to go through, to hear your voice uh, on loop, right? In production on loop so many times. And I remember being very self-conscious about it Mm -hmm. the first several years. And one thing I realized was that every time I hit play, I was hitting play from a place of self-criticism instead of a place of potentially delighting someone. And when I made that switch in my mind, it was like, 
it was like a huge weight came off my shoulders and I could just be in flow. Is that the same when you're in the booth or when you're doing music? Yes. And, you know, as they say, we're our own worst critic. And I agree with that. I feel like I'll be in the studio and I'll sing something, listen back to it and be like, that's terrible. And the producer's like, no, Brooke, that was actually really good. You just need to like listen to it a few more times and really think about how cool it sounds. So, yeah, I will say that's something I'm growing on every day as an artist, I think, is criticizing less and just really digging into my music and listening to it and being proud of everything I'm doing. Um, Good. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Yeah. So so looking back at your history, I wanted to sort of revisit some of the notes I had. Um, you were a contestant on The Voice. Is that right? Yes, I was. I was. I just turned 15 when I did that. So I was one of the youngest contestants. Yes. What was that experience like? I mean, we all watch the show and we wonder like how much takes place beforehand, what they shoot beforehand, mm-hmm. what it's like to go there. I mean, can you can you summarize summarize some of that, what that was like and at 15? My yeah. Goodness. Oh, I know. That feels like a lifetime ago, honestly. And I'm just like, it's crazy that I did that. Um, I will say it when you see the show on TV, it's a completely different thing than the behind the scenes. So for example, to play in front of the four judges in their chairs, like and physically sing in front of them, there are three auditions before that one. So yeah. So I forget what they call the certain auditions, but I had the first one was like in person, I guess, with like some of the producers of the shows. And Mm. then the second round was another one of those. The third round, the last step before going and playing in front of the judges was in person in California. So my audition was in San Diego. And what we did was play in front of um, some of the producers, like in person, some of the top people on the production team, and they chose the people from there. And when I moved forward, I was so excited, a little nervous because I had just turned 15. So this is a whole new world for me to dive into. Um, But I was actually out there for a month preparing for this one audition. So what it looked like was daily... um, I had to do some schoolwork. So they had the students go in a room and do schoolwork two, two to three hours a day. Um, then I would work with a vocal coach. And mm-hmm. after that, there would be some like film and production. So it was crazy. It was a whole experience. I got hair and makeup done. They would dress yeah. me. It was, it was really cool. But it's surreal that it was like when I was 15. Yeah. Do you, do you watch the show now or have there been times where you say to yourself watching it as a viewer like one well it was so weird that I was there and then it's different now right it probably feels very different now that you're a 22 year old artist Mm -hmm. you know breaking out in Nashville I'm curious what that reflection back is like it is very different I I don't watch it religiously on tv but I'll I'll see it and I'll watch it here and there from time to time and it is crazy to like see it now. It, it seems different, um, but in a great way. And it's just so funny to look back and be like, I was on that stage where they're singing. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I don't watch it religiously either, but occasionally when I do, I get really into it. Yes. Um, and I just saw an advertisement recently. I was watching one of the NFL games and the commercial came on. And I saw that Reba McIntyre is one of the judges. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I might have to I might have to <laughs> jump in and watch it again because Reba McIntyre was the first concert I ever went to. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Reba's awesome. Yeah. I'm trying to 
trying to remember what year that was. It had to be, I'm dating myself here, but 1992, <laughs> uh-huh. I think it was. Um, and it was at Universal Studios in California. Um, and I remember at the time, and I think she might still do this in some shows, but at the time when she sang and performed the song Fancy, she actually drove out on stage in a Cadillac. No um, way. That is so sick. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, Hollywood Studios. Can do that. She probably went all yeah. out at that show. She did. No, it was great. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about was performing at the Bluebird Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, because for, for, for me and for many who are kind of of my age group, I first started hearing about the Bluebird Cafe in the 90s when Garth Brooks yeah. was playing there and was kind of, I don't want to say discovered there, but it was like, it was Trish and Garth and mm-hmm. Martina and all these folks that that really kind of got me through some of the toughest years of my life. And so I'm always curious when I talk to folks who have played at the Bluebird, what was that experience like um, as as a performer versus one of the lucky people that gets to sit at the tables? Yeah, playing at the Bluebird is as special as it sounds, honestly. It is that honestly, to be completely honest, it's a hole in the wall from the outside. So you're like, that's the bluebird. And I've had a lot of like tourists and people who visit say that they're like, that's it. That's what they're hyping up. But once you're inside and you're in this small, intimate environment, listening to artists and hearing them talk about the stories behind their songs, that's what's the magic. Um, It is so cool playing there. I think first for an artist, it's an honor to play in this iconic spot where some artists were discovered and just the history of the bluebird, but also the audience is super supportive and nice and they really care. And I think you play anywhere else in Nashville, there's going to be like background noise and, you know, a loud bar, this and that, but playing at the bluebird is just like all eyes on you. Everyone is so involved and so excited to hear about your music and it's super special. Yeah. It feels like, you know, someone once described it to me as like stepping through a portal, like you're kind yeah, of in a sanctuary. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there were times I was also a big fan of the show Nashville mm-hmm. um, on I think it was ABC. It was on ABC at yeah. the time. And, you know, they did they did a couple of um, shows or scenes of, you know, some of the artists, the fictional artists, you know, playing at the Bluebird. And I thought they did a pretty good job of capturing sort of the intimate space, but also the sacredness of it and how artists who go there, who are invited there kind of go with a ton of nerves. And it's, it was really interesting how they displayed that through the script of the nerves get in the way. So it's like in that moment when you drop the, the wall of nerves that you might bring Mm -hmm. as an artist, you drop that and you just, you're vulnerable. And that's when the audience actually welcomes you yes right it's it's in that vulnerability was that your experience too for sure I remember being so nervous at first playing there just because of how iconic it is and what name the bluebird holds so when I was asked to play there I was nervous until I was like sitting in the chair and like ready to go and like starting to play my songs Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's true vulnerability is huge in music and I think the audience respects you when you pour your heart and soul into your songs and really make them feel something. So that's what I did. I was nervous. And then when I started playing, I was like, I don't get this opportunity all the time. And I was like, I want to touch these people who are here tonight. So I would just dive into my songs and really feel them emotionally and make people feel something. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, Speaking of songs that touch people, 
I wanted to talk briefly about one of the ones, mm -hmm. one of your songs that really touched me, um, The Dash. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about this song um, and, and, and how it came to you, what it means to you, and how it's touched a lot of people? The Dash is one of my favorite songs. It always will be. Um, this song just talks about the, your gravestone, the day you were born to the day you die, and all of that time in between that little dash. And I'd love to explain that story but before I play the song because that is the true meaning. It's saying, how do you want to leave a legacy? And what do you want to leave behind? What do you want to be known for? And I think that song just captures that whole feeling of reflection in your life. And um, I was honored to sing that song. Natalie Hemby was a writer on that one. She's an incredible mm -hmm. songwriter. And I am just thankful that I had the opportunity as an artist to cut that. Um, but every time I play that song, someone comes up to me and is like, that touched me in a special place. Yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, I went back and I listened to it a few times. And I think to myself, so much of, so much of what we hear today in music, a lot of times it's I'm going to use the word forceful. Yes. And I and I and I mean that I mean that not in a judging way. I just mean in the sense that like sometimes there are songs out there that feel like you have to force the message and you have to literally tell the listener what to listen for <laughs> as opposed to taking your hand off the sort of you know board if you will and letting the listener find the meaning in between right mm -hmm. i mean i've talked about this i've talked about this in a few other episodes with folks which is it's that old adage of um the music between the notes right the words between the lyrics and that to me was what i really liked about the dash it was it was you know emblematic of that we we all talk about the milestones in life we talk about the beginnings the endings but they're rarely songs that capture the journey that is unseen Ooh, that's... and that's what i loved about the song <laughs> Thank you. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So the other the other thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about was um, performing in a place like Bluebird mm -hmm. versus performing in a place like Whiskey Jam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tell me about that experience. So complete opposite environments. Bluebird, all eyes on you. Very vulnerable um, setup. And then Whiskey Jam is more of a full band full production, loud, crowded room vibe. So they're complete opposites, but they're both great in their own way. Um, I feel like as an artist myself, sometimes I enjoy doing writer rounds where it's just my guitar and mm -hmm. I, and it is that vulnerable environment. But there's other times where I'm like, I want to be up on a stage and like rock out with the band. So yeah. it's cool to do both of those. Um, but Whiskey Jam was a great experience as well. I had a lot of friends and family come out and... I had a full band, which is just so fun as an artist when you're jamming out to your songs and you can tr truly get the feel of your songs, like the production and play those mm -hmm. live for people. It's nothing like that feeling. So that was fun. What's your hype music? Like when you think about going out before like a whiskey jam thing or something, I was actually just recently reading um, Bono's memoir, mm -hmm. uh, Surrender, and, and, and just hearing about the process of an artist and a, and a band who plays on such a world stage and right now they're playing at the sphere in vegas and and he was reflecting on it and what the music is that the 
the artists listen to before they go on stage and then the music that obviously the audience hears is sometimes different but i'm curious like when you are about to go rock out like what do you what do you put on to get hyped to get brooke in that space of like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna take on the world Ooh, that's a good question i i would probably say i love pink she's kind of got that, oh yes that pop rock thing going so i love jamming out to her songs because it, it just gets me excited um, so I, pink is fun for sure. Shania Twain, you know, let's go girls. That song, I feel like, especially when I'm about to play out, I was like, I need some energy. So usually when I get ready and mm -hmm. like do my makeup before a show, I'll usually turn on pink or Shania Twain. Um, one of my favorite bands is Coldplay. So some of their like oh, yeah. fun, upbeat driven songs as well. Absolutely. Those are great, great, great choices. Um, I mean, I think back to Gosh, there was a Shania Twain era that I went through. Um, I want to say it was when I was in college. And there was a great song mm -hmm. called Don't Be Stupid. Um, <laughs> and the video for that song was one of my favorites by her because it's very simple. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you should go back and see it uh, because it's basically her on sort of almost looks like a soundstage, but there it's raining on the soundstage. And so, sh so she's kind of got that that wet look, but they have Irish dancers that are there on the soundstage with her. And so it's got a little bit of that Celtic sound to it with the, almost like the Celtic flute in it. Mm -hmm. And so she's, she's having fun. She's dancing in this rain on the soundstage and there's these Irish dancers to the left and right of her. And they're all doing that very famous, you know, Irish, Irish dancing that we know. And it just looked so much, it looked like she was having so much fun. And to me, like that brought the song to life in a, in a totally different way. Um, so I can totally appreciate the Shania, um, That's awesome. and of course, pink. I mean, I worship at the church of pink. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've been, a, I've been a fan of her since gosh, since, um, 99, 1999, wow. 2000. She's so amazing. This when she was, when she was in her early, early days, you know, the story of her, when they tried to turn her into something that she wasn't. Um, and the, that first album was, was quite powerful because she had that voice that she could carry that. But you could tell the difference between her first album and her second album that they were making her into a sound that wasn't authentic her. And, yep. her, and her trajectory has just been incredible all the way up to Trustfall. Yeah, so Pink is a longtime favorite of mine as well. <laughs> She's great. And the way that she, what is it called, aerobics or whatever she does in the air? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you sing that good and fly in the air at concerts? It's crazy. Yeah, her breath control has to be amazing. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, she she does, I'm sure she does Pilates and yoga and breath work and, For sure. you know, everything shy of what do they call that um, breath diving where people dive down really far mm -hmm. and hold their breath. For, I mean, maybe she's done that too. I have no idea. But you're right to, to, to be on that swing, to be spinning, to be doing all that and not losing a note. I, I mean, know. Incredible. Crazy. So um, I'd love to talk a little bit about YouTube for a second, mm -hmm. because YouTube played a big role in your life growing up in terms of how you learned about music. And now I just discovered, because I was going back and looking at some of the things you've done, you've actually started a series of your own on YouTube. Yes. Um, so I would love for you to talk about kind of the, the arc of what YouTube has been for you and then the new, the new ventures that you're doing there to help people learn about chords and guitars and and music. 
Yeah, so I do love YouTube. I think a lot of people go to YouTube to learn something, and that's what I did. So I had a in-person guitar teacher when I started at eight, which is great. And I had him for like a year and a half. After that, I was like, all right, I'm done with the music theory part. I want to learn how to play a song. So I would go to YouTube and I would be, look it up. How do you play 15 by Taylor Swift? Or, you know, how do you even start learning guitar? So I would go to YouTube, spend hours in it, just diving into the world of guitar and figuring out how to play songs, how to play chords. And over time, I just really picked up on it from YouTube. It's crazy. Just like seeing people playing and going like into detail on how to play these chords, it really helped me. So now I have a YouTube channel and originally I've had it for like four years now, five years, Um, might be even longer than that. But what I did was just post covers for myself and post some original songs, which is great. But now I look at YouTube as a platform where, hey, I grew up on YouTube learning how to play guitar and learning about the music industry. So what I want to do now with my platform is teach guitar lessons and, you know, teach the basics. So if a young eight-year-old girl like me goes to YouTube, she can find my video and be inspired. And I also just want to give my take on how to write a song and what it's like being an artist in the music industry. Because I get asked that all the time. So I think having a video about that would be super cool. So we'll see. I'm excited to see where it takes me, but I I just want to start posting more about the life of an artist, basically. I love that. I really, I really appreciate how generous that is because like I was looking this morning and I love the, I I, kind of watched the first part of the series. And I remember um, when I was younger, I tried to learn chords as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, I may, I may have shared this in one of our discussions, but as a kid, um, I was always drawn to music, like always. And, you know, records were always playing in our house. And I remember my oldest sister um, had a boyfriend and he came over with guitar once mm-hmm. and he was playing Jimmy Buffett at the time. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, I need to get one of those and I want to learn everything I can about it. And my parents uh, at the time saw sort of the glimmer in my eyes, maybe as like a six, seven, eight year old kid. And they were a little bit terrified by that glimmer. <laughs> and they were probably said in their head, whatever we do, let's make sure we do not put a guitar in his hands because he might just dream his life away and off yeah. it goes. And so I was I was encouraged to try other instruments. So I, I actually learned piano. Um, I played the clarinet and then I played flute, Um, but I always wanted to play guitar. And years later, I think I was in college. um, I was in an internship out in Colorado and I was staying with some friends and there was a guitar down in their basement. They hadn't used it in a while. And I remember trying to just sound out the chords and I was able to play a couple chords from some Oasis songs. And it like, it, it sort of uncorked something in me. And yeah. I was like, I need to keep doing this. Um, and then I got in my head, right? And I and I, and I I started saying, oh, I don't know enough about music theory. And, um, and I never really picked it up again. Um, but I love what I saw this morning because one of the things you reminded me of is I actually never learned the technique about assigning numbers to the fingers. Oh, yes. Right? And when you, when, you, when you talk, I was like, that makes so much sense because the part I was, I always had a challenge with and some people listening might have this very similar. I have very long, skinny fingers, mm-hmm. right? 
And it was very hard to actually keep the finger yeah. down on the string. Um, that made, you know, these fingers were great for piano. Oh, yeah. The long <laughs> not, fingers. Not, yeah. Not so great for clarinet because I couldn't plug the holes. And apparently not so great for guitar because yeah. you can't like hold the strings down. Um, it's tough. But when, yeah. But when I watched you talk about assigning the number to the finger, to the digit, I thought, why didn't, why did I not know that? That makes so much sense. Because mm -hmm. then you can say, put one on the second fret on the second string. You know, you can yes. sort of one to one type thing. And it's easier to remember. It's like a mnemonic. Yeah. So did you learn that? Did somebody teach that to you? Was that instinctual? So I remember learning that back when I took guitar lessons a long time ago. But it is funny. I feel like sometimes when I go to YouTube or go to videos, they don't explain it that way. And I kind yeah. of, my thinking was, okay, if a seven-year-old is on this video, they're going to be confused, you know, right off the bat. If I'm just like, you put your ring finger on the third fret of da-da-da-da-da. So that's why I was like, all right, we're assigning the fingers one, two, three, four. And like kind of what you did, you run it down step by step, like first finger on the first fret of the third string. And I just yeah. think it's a lot easier to, to follow something yeah. like that. Yeah, I just thought it was so gentle and also gracious. And I thought, wow, that's a very simple way to break it down mm -hmm. so that you can think to yourself. And then I'm curious also, because you, you you shared the five chords, right? Um, and some of the popular ones that people know is like a G. Um, you know, there was, an, I think, an e, is an E minor or yes. an A minor? E minor and A minor are the two I okay. also taught. I'm curious because each one of them has a different, familiar sound to us when we listen to them on their own do you have a favorite chord do you go to a chord more often do you think as a singer songwriter than most that's a cool question i i love my chords um i would say i think some of my one of my favorite chords would be c c or okay. f and i think because it just has such a familiar sound like what you said um, but I can play different variations of C. So mm -hmm. it's a little hard to explain, but like, you know, C uses my one, two, and three fingers and I can add on my four in a cool way. And it has a completely different sound. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I just think there's a lot to play with, with the chord C and it just sounds beautiful. I feel like in any key. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you notice, and this is probably a, a question that just popped into my head. Do you notice when you're working with other songwriters or doing the rounds or even producers, do you ever notice, um, producers say, Hey, your voice would sound really great with this chord, or is it not so prescriptive? I'm just curious about that. Cause you, you talked about the raspiness of the voice. Yeah. So especially when I'm in the studio, that's when producers will, will suggest, hey, maybe go to that A minor. That'll suit your voice mm -hmm. well. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, sometimes that's how they go about it. Um, I feel like producers have such a crazy ear for music. Yeah. It's insane what they hear. Even as an artist, I'm like, producers just are on another level with their music abilities. And I think I am open to their suggestions all the time because they really do know what would sound good. And 10 out of 10 times that they're like, hey, try this chord instead of this one. It sounds better. So I always trust yeah. what they have to say. <laughs> What's that relationship like? I mean, I, as someone who uh, kind of geeks out on this from a, from a, you know, 
I think I shared this with Emily Falvey, who I know is another singer songwriter in Nashville that, you know, on a previous episode. And I said to her, you know, the, the idea of, of getting to work amongst producers who, as you described, they hear things differently. Right. And I, and I think I said to her in that episode, um, I move through the world with a songwriter's eyes and, and she, you know, that to me means I would love working with producers as well, because I hear things differently. I hear music differently, but I also see words Mm -hmm. and hear words differently. And I think a producer is in that space between, and they, they can hear things that almost haven't been dreamed yet. If that makes sense. Is, is, Is that what it's like to work with certain producers? It is. It's a really cool experience because they, like what you said, they just take the most simple idea and they turn it into something that's super cool. Every producer is different. And I think that any producer you, you work with brings something to the table and the artist always brings something to the table. But I think what's important is the working relationship. Um, you know, having a producer who understands your sound and who you are as an artist is so important. Because that's where the magic happens when you both mm-hmm. have these cool visions and you bring them together. And that's when it makes a masterpiece personally from what I've experienced. It's it's super cool when I have this really cool melody idea and the producer's like, all right, instead of guitar for this part, let's add in keys. And it can change the, com- the sound of the song completely. And I think having a producer who understands your sound completely is really important. Yeah. How do producers get to know artists outside the booth? And what I mean by that is like, yes, you can see the world through a booth and with headphones on and all that. But but I've always I've always felt like the strongest producer singer songwriter relationships happen when they build it outside of outside of the booth. So you go like, I don't know, like, do you do you, do you go for walks? Do you go yeah. see movies? Do you read books together? Like, how does that build? I have a great relationship with my producers. Honestly, I look at them as family friends, like my my parents yeah. love them. And that is so cool to have that relationship. What what usually builds that that spark in that like comfortable relationship um outside of the studio is just they believe in you and I think that's important. Finding a producer who is someone who just loves you and loves your music and adores what you're doing. That's the first step, I think, is finding someone who's excited and supportive. And then from there, yeah, I mean, we'll go get coffee. We'll go out to dinner. Like yeah. some of my producers and I do dinners monthly. And we usually like all sit down and talk about the next release and what we want it to sound like. And I just think being outside of the studio, that time's just as important as in the studio. Yeah, I, I totally, I, I appreciate you saying that because that's how it feels, mm-hmm. right? You, when you when you have a great artist and great producer relationship that comes through the music, you know they've taken long walks. Yes. You know they've gone for countless coffees. You know they've had dinner at their parents' house, right? Like that's the real of all of mm-hmm. this. And that's why the authentic comes through music, I think, um, as opposed to sort of like a sterile production, you know, just phone it in kind of Yeah, thing. like you walk into the studio and there's a producer who's never heard you who doesn't know you when they produce it. It's not like right. that. And I feel like sometimes these music movies portray that, but I, from my experience, it yeah. is like good working relationship and, you know, I trust what they're doing. They trust what I'm doing. 
Yeah. Do you ever get to set the scene in a, in a studio? So for example, a lot of times we see in TV shows or movies that the artist will come in and maybe be like, you know what, I want some candles here. I mm-hmm. want to throw an, uh, an, an Afghan rug down there. Yeah. <laughs> I want some lighting. Do you get to do that? Or is that kind of, is that more mythological and in, in the way the movies portray it? No, that's a real thing. Setting the scene for the studio is important. For me, it's a vibe. I need, when I'm about to record yeah. vocals, I need to feel like I'm in my own atmosphere. So usually what I'll do is I like the lights dimmed and I like some form of candles. Um, They don't even have to be real candles, just like a little bit of light in a darker room. I don't know how to explain it, but when you're singing and closing your eyes and really getting into the song in that environment, it just, you feel it more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's uh, you. I mean, to me, that's always how I've envisioned it Mm -hmm. is that sort of softer light more cocoon feel yes. when you're really kind of getting to the deep, the deep um, meaning and the deep uh, feeling. And then um, I'm also curious, just again, from a, a technical standpoint, when you go into the booth and you've got lyrics, do you print them out on paper? Are they on a device? Mm-hmm. Is it on an iPad? I would just love to, I geek out on this. Yeah. Stuff, so. No, that's awesome. I genuinely, my producers will print out lyric sheets and I'll use my phone. Yeah. So that's usually how it works. Okay. There's like a lyric sheet on yeah. the stand, but I have my little like phone. hanging there. Yeah. And then I have yeah, my little okay. phone and I'm like, but I prefer to like see it on my phone. And I think that right. roots from and rights nowadays, you use Google Docs on your phone or your computer. So when I'm writing right. a song, you know, we'll go to the notes app or Google Docs and I'll I'll type up my lyrics in those. So I think if the song started, the process started on my phone. I feel like when I'm in the studio, it's just like, oh, let me go to the document where we started this whole thing and and go from there. Yes. You know, it was interesting watching all the Taylor Swift documentaries. It was very similar, yeah. right? She talked about how things start on her phone mm-hmm. must continue on her phone all the way up until the studio. And I loved seeing that behind the scenes where, you know, she either takes the notes app and starts typing or the voice notes app and just starts singing into it without without any really kind of understandable, legible words, but it's something coming through. And I love that because it made it seem so approachable for anybody, right? We all carry these devices in our pockets. Like if you've got an idea, write it down. If you hear a tune, sing it out. It could turn into the next best hit Mm -hmm. song. Um, But you got to get it out of your head, right? Yes. (laughs) I use my phone all the time. Voice memos is like my best friend. Um, Anytime I have a little melody or even a lyrical idea, I'll go to voice memos, hit record, and lay it all out so I don't forget it. How do you organize it? It's not organized. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's the reality. There are thousands of voice memos. Yeah. I, I, I usually title them, but it's still not organized. Yeah. <laughs> to be completely honest. That's my issue. I, I, I go in and I've got notes all over my yeah. phone. And I don't title them because I'm in stream of consciousness. Like yeah. I wake up from a dream and I'm like, I just heard this phrase. I got to write it down. I don't know what it means. And then I and then I go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then I come back and I'm like, untitled note, November 17th. And I'm like, what was that? Exactly. So yeah, I, I totally feel the pain. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. I need, I need to get an organized thing for all my songs. Um, well, I appreciate you sharing that one last question mm-hmm. i'd love for you to talk about your upcoming single yeah. you have one coming out i believe on the 26th i just saw an amazing reel mm-hmm. that you shared can you talk about that and tell folks a little bit 
about what's to come and where they can find out more about you if they've not heard about you or if they want to go learn more about your YouTube channel, certainly on Instagram as well. Thank you. And first off, I appreciate all the support. Um, Thank you for going through and noticing all of this and promoting my next single. So it's called Not the Only One in This Town. I wrote this one with Billy Smiley, who's one of my producers, and Nathan Chapman. Nathan Chapman is incredible. He I love Nathan he Chapman's work. Almost yep. everything, it seems like. And yep. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And this song is special to me. It's it's honestly about being lost and found in life. And we all go through things and have hard days and give up on ourselves, but realizing that you're not alone in that. You're not the only one in this town going through something. And it always makes it feel a little lighter knowing you're not the only one who goes through something. Um, so that's what we wrote this song about. And it's really personal. You know, I really dive into the emotions of like heartbreak and giving up on myself when mama raised me strong. That's one of my favorite lines of the song. Um, yeah. So it's special and I'm super excited. It comes out on the 26th, January, and you can find my music, everything, all my social media under Brooke Hadela. Brooke has an E and then Hadela is H-A-T-A-L-A. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm su- super excited to to listen to that um, when it's released. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I remember very distinctly when I first started hearing your music was what a great pairing you would be on so many duets. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to manifest this out there a little bit. But like, when I first heard your voice and I first heard the voice of like Tyler Braden, I was like, oh, man, like, let's throw those together. Yeah. You know, and and so I just want to wish you all the luck going forward. I, I love the fact that you've stayed really genuinely true to who you are, you know, from that eight-year-old to that 15-year-old to that 22-year-old. Thank you. Like, this has been a wonderful journey to sort of go back and sort of see and 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 uncover and discover. And, pr- and more importantly, to echo out there because, you know, singer-songwriters saved my life growing mm-hmm. up. And I can't imagine a world without them. And so I just, I find it, really powerful to welcome you know artists like yourself to come on here echo the platform and maybe a future artist might hear this and take that opportunity to follow your youtube channel pick up that guitar write that song make that voice note that turns into something in the future so thank you oh thank you i appreciate that thank you 